Missionaries, generally speaking, missionaries are an extension of a local church. They take the values, the doctrine, the hope, the message of a local church to other places, both domestically and uh, internationally. And we thank God for our gifted missionaries that we have the privilege of praying for and financially supporting. And today in our passage in Acts chapter 14, we're going to see that the baby church's very first missionaries were worth copying because they were commendably responsible to their sending church. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts 14, if you haven't done so already, and let's hear the word of God beginning at verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, having persuaded the multitudes. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Verse 28. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. I have five observations from these verses I have just read with you. I'll go over them in an overview fashion. Observation one, they suffered. I see that in verses 19 and 20. Two, they preached. I see that in verse 21 and verses 24 to 25. Three, they strengthened believers. I see that in verse 22. Four, they organized local churches, verse 23. And fifth, they reported to their sending church. That's verses 26 to 28. Now, as we look at these five expressions of appropriate responsibility for Christian ministry, let's see what we find, because some of it is applicable to us, although we may not be missionaries. First, they suffered, verses 19 and 20. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead, verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. A stoning was a very gruesome way to kill someone. What happened when someone was stoned was they took the person outside of the city proper to a rock cliff or precipice into a valley full of big boulders. And they shoved the person they were going to stone off the cliff and down into the gorge where the big boulders were. That would have severely injured the person being stoned to begin with, but then they proceeded to pelt and to throw small enough stones that fit into their hands, hitting the person who was helpless and defenseless down there below them. 
And they pelted rocks at such a person until the person was bloodied and bruised and bone mashed and dead. That was a stoning. And missionary Paul was stoned. And he was left supposedly dead. But he wasn't dead. It was a miracle that he survived such an ordeal. And later in his ministry, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Galatians 6, verse 17. From now on, let no, trouble, no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He said, don't you criticize my ministry. I have suffered in my body for being Christ's. And no doubt he had scars from that day when they stoned him. That authenticates a person's ministry when they suffer for serving the Lord. And so it's worth noting that the Apostle Paul's business card was not his academic resume, although he was highly learned, highly educated Jew. But he didn't put that if he had a business card, he didn't put that on his business card. He said that his credentials, that he wanted you to know if you met him, were his scars. Scars he had endured because people hated Christ and hated him and wanted him dead. So the apostles suffered, and so will we. Maybe not with stoning, but we will suffer if we would side with Christ. Second, they preached. In verses 21 to 24 and 25, we see that these apostles fearlessly preached. Verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, skipping down to verse 24 and 25. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Their modus operandi was to preach the gospel fearlessly, clearly, boldly. And after Paul was stoned, he and Barnabas moved on to the next city, Derby. There they preached the gospel. Don't you love that? Paul almost got himself killed by rocks for preaching the gospel. He goes with Barnabas on to Derby and keeps preaching the gospel. I love that. Paul was left for dead, stoned, bruised, bloodied, bones mashed, but he preached the gospel even after that treatment in Lystra. He kept on preaching the gospel in Derby. Dave Howard, in his book, The Power of the Holy Spirit, tells about a fearless pastor he ministered with in Colombia named Luperserio Taba. One Sunday, Taba was preaching from his pulpit when a man appeared at the side window of the church, aimed a pistol at him, and ordered him to stop preaching. The congregation, seeing the danger, dove to the floor and hid under the pews. Taba, however, went right on preaching the gospel. The man fired four shots at him. Two shots went past the preacher's head, one on one side, one on the other, and lodged in the wall behind him. 
Two shots went past his body, one under one arm, one under the other. And they also lodged in the wall. Can you imagine? The would-be assassin then dropped his gun and fled. And Tabu, still unmoved, just kept preaching the gospel. Tabba preached. Paul and Barnabas preached two centuries before Tabba. And look what Paul preached. Hot on the heels of being stoned and left for dead. Verse 22, look what he preached. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. He knew of that which he spoke. Paul, for him, there on that occasion, it wasn't do as we say. It was expect to do what we've done, to suffer for the sake of the gospel. For Paul, suffering was not theory. It was his experience. And that's always one of the things that makes a preacher's message credible and powerful and impactful is when he has suffered for what he's preaching and been unflinching, unintimidated, full of faith and obedience. So whatever you might be called to do that would involve suffering, maybe in your family gatherings when you want to pray and the rest of your family doesn't think that's appropriate, when you suffer as a college or a high school student, both in your lectures and in your hallways of learning, when you suffer in your workplaces perhaps for being moral and ethical and right, when you suffer in your business deals, when you stick to your handshake or a contract when it costs you a lot of money, however we may call to suffer, prodigal children, however we may be caused to suffer, don't quit. Don't quit loving and serving Jesus Christ. Don't quit. And if Paul had quit back in Lystra, Derby and all the other cities after Derby would not have gotten the gospel. A lot is on the line when we are tempted to quit serving the Lord because we are suffering for doing so. A lot is on the line, in the balance. Bruce Olson, in 1960, was 19 years old and a college student. And he went to the country of Columbia to live in the jungle with the Montelone Indians against his parents' wishes. And the Montelone Indians had no written language and had never heard that there was a God that loved them and desired to know them. Fast forward a few decades and Olson had written and taught them to read in their language, translated the Bible, taught them how to farm, taught them health measures and so much more. And Olson did all that with the opposition of his parents, the suffering that that must have entailed he bore the sufferings so that the eternal course of a tribal people could be altered and they could go to heaven. Don't quit. There is a special grace that God gives to us 
that's promised to us when we will suffer for doing right. And it's in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Listen, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of the good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their hearts nor be troubled, but sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness, strength under control, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as if you were evildoers, those who revile your good character in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. There's a special grace promised to the believer who will do the right thing and know they'll suffer and endure the suffering and keep on doing the right thing. Special grace. And so they suffered and they preached Third observation, they strengthened. Verse 22, they strengthened churches. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Amazingly, after strengthening the believers in Derby, the missionaries retraced their steps. What's amazing about them retracing their steps was that they did that to strengthen the believers who they had left behind in the places of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Why was it amazing that they retraced their steps to strengthen the believers in those particular cities? I'll tell you why. Nobody put up a statue to them to celebrate their visit to those cities. They didn't ride a wave of popularity such that they were even close to being elected mayors of those cities. They were violently rejected in those cities. They were run out of town by force in all those three places. And it took courage. It took obedience. A lot of both to go back to those places, to check on the believers they'd left there, to strengthen the local churches that they had established there. Courage and obedience. It was the 19th century Victorian era essayist, historian, and philosopher Thomas Carlyle who said, you cannot fight the French merely with red uniforms. There must be men inside them. There is no doubt There is no doubt, number one, that Paul and Barnabas were brave. Number two, that Paul and Barnabas were obedient. Number three, that Paul and Barnabas were loving. In fact, so loving and so much willing to take a risk of their own lives in order to go back and strengthen the spiritual lives of the believers in those three places. Number four, there is no doubt that Paul and Barnabas were also realistic. They told believers the truth. The truth that many troubles, the text says tribulations, many problems await every believer, you and me, 
await every believer who would dare to press on in the faith while living among unbelievers, like we all do every day. Verse 22, they told the truth, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Oh, they suffered, but that didn't make them quit. They preached the gospel. They strengthened the local churches in difficult places of opposition to them and the gospel. Fourth observation, they organized. Verse 23, they organized. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You know, our God is not a God of confusion. Our God is a God of order. And therefore, God's church is to be orderly, organized, and structured. God's way for churches to be organized, God's plan for local churches to be orderly, is one, that elders are to lead local churches. Number two, every local church is to have more than one elder ruling Number three, elders are to be highly qualified with respect to their character. Calvary Bible Church currently has 10 elders. Men, would you, call, would you stand when I call your names and stay standing? The 10 elders of our assembly are Pastor Frederick Arnett, Pastor Randy Pierce, Pastor Clinton Cartwright, Pastor Errol Farkason. Pastor Drew Fowler, Pastor Jerry Sawyer, Pastor Wenley Fowler, Pastor Anthon Wallace, and Pastor Craig Knowles, who is on study leave in Florida, and me, 10 and all. Remain standing, guys. All of these brothers measure up to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 qualifications of an elder. Let me read those for you. It is a faithful saying, this is 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop or an elder or a pastor, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside the church, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Please remain standing, elders. We also have deacons in our church. Deacons who are also qualified according to the scriptures as found in in, uh, 1 Timothy 3 as well, starting at verse 8. Let me call the deacons' names, and if you are present, would you stand? Charlie Albury, Willie Jack, Elwood Bonamy, Nathaniel Edgecombe, Garrick Ferguson, Kyle Ferguson, Rodney Stewart, Wesley Ferguson, Thaddeus Pierce, 
Terrence Pinder, Chris Worrell, Kirk Delavoe, and Chris Cartwright. These are our deacons, qualified as well according to the scriptures. Thank you, men. Please be seated. Yeah, give them a thanks. I so appreciate each of these men. The spiritual oversight of our church is shared with the pastors. The temporal oversight of our church is shared by the deacons. And both are necessary. One is not more important than the other. I would not have come to become the pastor of Calvary Bible Church if we were not organized in this manner biblically. I would not have answered a call to any church that failed to have a multiplicity, a plurality of elders. I would not have come to a church that did not have deacons to do the work that a deacon does in Scripture. But I was thrilled to answer the call to come here, among other reasons, because we had a working group of pastors spiritually overseeing the church family already, and we had working deacons, not figureheads, who were rolling up their sleeves on budgets and temporal matters to do with the building, and so on. Managing your financial givings properly with accountability, that's one of the joys I had to come here. And it continues to be a joy to work with these servant leaders. Back to Barnabas and Paul. They suffered. They preached. They strengthened. They organized. And fifth, they reported. Verses 26 to 28. From there they sailed to Antioch. That was the sending church. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. It's important to notice that Paul and Barnabas saw themselves as being responsible Christian workers. They saw themselves as being responsible first and foremost to the Lord. But then they saw themselves as also being responsible to the particular local church which sent them to the mission field. It's clear that the very first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, did not see themselves as free agents. They didn't see themselves as above the requirement of reporting on how they used their time and the church's money. Responsibility leads to reporting, and reporting leads to accountability and evaluation, and accountability and evaluation lead to thanksgiving. This was not just a first century thing. This is still the case. Missionaries are responsible to the Lord and to the local church or churches which send them and support them. Missionaries report, missionaries are accountable, missionaries are evaluated, and missionaries give cause for the body of Christ that sends them to rejoice in the Lord's blessings of their ministry, missionary endeavors. And so I'm beginning to wrap up. The first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, they suffered. So will you and me. They preached because they didn't quit after they suffered, and we won't quit either. They strengthened 
That is, they loved others in the family of God in different congregations enough to put their interests, those believers' interests, over their own interests. Philippians 2.4, if you're making marginal notes. They organized, that is, the local churches they were affiliated with in their missionary journey, they understood to be the primary vehicle of blessing in the church age. So they went back at risk of their own well-being to strengthen those believers. And they reported they saw themselves as responsible and accountable to other believers. Now, the record of the very first missionary journey or trip comes to an end with Acts chapter 14. And this very first missions trip took three years, A.D. 47 to 49. And Acts chapters 13 and 14 give us the details of this missions trip. And I want to show you four timeless principles for evangelism, disciple-making, and missions. They were true in the first century, and these timeless principles for evangelism, disciple-making, and missions are still in play in the 21st century. Ready? A focus on key cities. Having more than one approach. Establishing churches. Grounding believers in the word of God. Let's take this very quickly, one by one. They focused on key cities. Nassau is the key city of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. 80 or more percent of Bahamians live in our city. Our job as a local church is to reach Nassau for Christ first. And then to move out to reach our countrymen on the family islands. They focused on key cities. It was Oswald J. Smith of the People's Church in Toronto, a great missiologist, who said this, the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. The light that shines the farthest shows the brightest at home. Let's do things, church family, Let's pray things. Let's work so that we can reach our city for Christ. So many people to reach. So much spirituality and Christianity in our city is at half an inch deep and miles wide. There are people in our city, precious people, who when they die, they don't go to heaven because they're believing a false gospel. We must reach our city for Christ. Number two, timeless Ministry approach. They had more than one approach. Barnabas and Paul had one approach for the Jews and another approach for the Gentiles. They had the same gospel message, but they approached the Jews with it in one way, and they approached the Gentiles with that same message in another way. They had more than one approach. Who are the different groups in our city that we are called to reach for Christ? Well, there's many. But let me cite a few. Mason's Edition. The educators of our country. The business persons of our country. The tradespeople of our country. The generations of our various family units in our city. How should we reach each group? With a variety of approaches. But all those approaches demonstrate a sincere and genuine and unconditional love for lost people. 
We must show and tell that we love lost people of any walk of life, of any socioeconomic bracket, of any race. We must tell lost people and show them that we love them. We have to love lost people. They didn't only focus on major cities. They didn't only have more than one approach. But third, they established churches. Bible studies are one thing, but Bible studies in themselves are not churches. Churches make disciples. Churches have church discipline. Churches equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Churches are organized with servant leaders as pastors and elders and servant leaders as deacons. Bible studies are good, but in and of themselves, they are not churches. We are called as a church not to establish merely Bible studies. We are called to establish churches. What will that look like? Let's stay tuned and see what the Lord shows us. Number four, they grounded believers in the word. They didn't get sidetracked from grounding believers in the word of God. We don't want to become what Rotary or Kiwanis or any other service club can do. Nothing against those service clubs. But we are called to other things. We are called to making fully committed followers of Christ by loving the Lord, by loving one another, and by loving the lost. And we are grounded in God's word so we'll fully follow Jesus Christ to do those things. Small groups are key to what this church is about going forward. Small groups are essential to doing what God has called us to do in reaching this city for Christ. You must be in a small group. Please don't tell me you're shy. Please don't tell me you don't drive at night. Please don't tell me you don't want to go more than two miles to a small group. We can get you a ride after dark. Be in a small group. In the fall, we want a very high percentage of our church family in small groups because that's going to be the engine for loving the lost. Small groups are going to take the gospel to the lost as small groups. Doing what particular small groups can do because of their social contacts with lost people that are unique. Be in a small group. We're going to break for the summer, but come at it in the fall, full tilt. Please sign up for a small group. Every one of us, every age. And so the timeless principles that we see in the apostles' first missionary journey, they focused on key cities. They had more than one approach. They established churches, and they grounded believers in the word of God. I realize that today is sort of like drinking out of a fire hydrant. <laughs> There's so much truth here. There's so many facts. It's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. But could you get some hydration from this sermon by just taking one or two of the points I've shared and putting them into practice? One or two. I'm going to list all the points. Can you, with the Holy Spirit's help, pick one of them or two of them and work on doing those one, that one thing or the two things? Ready? Pick one or two. They suffered. They preached, they strengthened, they organized, they reported, they focused on key cities, they had more than one approach, 
they established churches. They grounded believers in the word of God. It's a fire hydrant flow of water. Hydrate yourself with at least one or two sips of Christ's loving water. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the first missionary journey and for all those that were reached in Gentile country to transfer their trust to Christ alone and be born again. Thank you that their descendants, their descendants are our ancestors. The people in those parts of the world, as the chain of birth and generations has come down, many of us are physically related to those people. Lord, help us. Help us to reach our city for Christ. Help us to be in small groups. Help us to be willing to suffer. Help us to do your will. Help us to be responsible Christian workers for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.